Some of the greatest innovations can often be found in some of the most challenging circumstances. In the affordable housing world, one of the most challenging problems to address is homelessness. And some of the most innovative solutions in recent years have been in the evolution of permanent supportive housing. Permanent supportive housing has a big impact on the lives of its residents and the surrounding community. And there are a lot of lessons to learn from the challenges and solutions involved. And those lessons may be applied more broadly. And we're going to look into some of those lessons and innovations today. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. Today on the show, we're going to talk about supportive housing. We've got a great discussion planned that will touch on some history, some architecture, some finance, and on how to do supportive housing effectively. We're joined by two thought leaders in the space, Christian Aumada, Executive Director of Clifford Beers Housing, and Debbie Burkhart, National VP of Supportive Housing at the National Equity Fund. So thank you both for being here. Happy to be here. Nice to be here. Thank you. I think it would be good uh, to go into some of the history of, uh, of supportive housing and how that's changed over time. I, I think that would be a good start to get the macro picture. Uh, the um, McKinney-Mento Act was passed in 1987, and it was the first federal legislative response to homelessness, primarily for building homeless shelters and passed by Congress and signed into law by President Reagan. Um, the act was then has been was reauthorized several times, and there were under that act rent subsidies called Shelter Plus Care and SHP. I'm sort of dating myself and, and some of the audience. Uh, we, we remember that these were the operating subsidies in addition to the McKinney Mod Rehab SRO program, which provided Section 8 with a 10-year project-based contract. But that Mod Rehab, it was just Mod Rehab of old SROs. We couldn't do the significant work that was to make those buildings sustainable. And also, while this spurred the development in the 90s, uh, the buildings that were built uh, didn't have the benefit of the uh, uh, accessible housing legislation that was passed later in the 1990s. Uh, and, um, and so many of these dwellings um, under the Fair Housing Act of 1991, but then the design manual didn't come out until 1996. So there, there's still uh, today, as we look back on these older properties, we need to do upgrades for accessibility standards. And then the other significant design element that was not in place in the 90s either was was uh, green housing uh, design features. The LED rating system was instituted in 2000. And then you look at rent subsidies, like rent subsidies have to be project-based to build sustainable permanent supportive housing. And once project-based rent subsidies became available around 2000, when uh, in 1998, there is a merger of the certificate and voucher tenant-based program, and then it was significantly uh, uh, upgraded in, in 2000 and implemented in 2001, we started getting 10-year project-based Section 8 contracts, which then provided an income stream for us to do uh, 100% permanent supportive housing for even families. And so we were, we were able then to start to see a takeoff of innovative design 
and um, housing models for different sectors of the homeless population. And, and that's what I, uh, Christian has been a leader in his organization in, in doing some of those um, fantastic new design elements. But um, uh, so I just will leave it at that for the moment. And I think that's a great transition into over to you, Christian, uh, and maybe to speak to Clifford Beers and, uh, and how you guys approach permanent supportive housing. Sure. Uh, let me add a few things to what, what Debbie was saying uh, that I think are critical to the conversation, uh, at least in terms of, you know, the physical building. So uh, back in those days, those single room occupancies uh, were probably between 150 to 200 square feet. They were very small, but they served their purpose. Uh, they did not have a kitchenette. They did not have a bathroom. And so every floor had sort of those shared amenities. Uh, most of them were sort of double-loaded corridors. So you had units on both sides. There was very little open space. There were no services. Uh, and there was no space for services. Uh, so the buildings look very different from what they look like today. So as a segue into what Clifford Beers Housing does today, we're essentially a supportive housing developer that's dedicated to uh, creating housing that's integrated for folks and has a focus on design. Uh, but most important, that is inclusivity. And inclusivity is critical in every single respect, whether you're talking about income, or whether you're talking about mixed use. Um, so today our buildings, pretty much all of them have an open typology, meaning an open courtyard. To whatever degree possible, we try to create a lot of shared amenities. So whether that would be a green roof or garden or uh, various community rooms, in the case of our Isla project, which is South Los Angeles today. It's going to be one of the first uh, PSH transactions that is next to something called a Paseo. In that Paseo, think of it as a shared street where it will be activated with a significant amount of open space and tons of trees that will break down the contaminants. And the greatest innovative part about that is that it's going to be irrigated with gray water. Um, so the, that history, that evolution of how the buildings look from then to today is tremendous. And COVID uh, is going to push us even more so to come up with a superior product uh, as uh, time evolves. So Christian, you started talking about uh, one of the one of the projects, and and I know you've been you've been doing this for for a long time. So maybe maybe we can step through, um, you know, some of the early deals that you did, uh, and then how your approach has changed over time, uh, if it has at all. Sure. Let me start with sort of one of my earlier projects, permanent supportive housing. Uh, this is a project called Rainbow Apartments. Uh, this was a project I worked on in two thousand and five. Um, it was one of the first, if not the first, project that actually went into the city's managed pipeline as a permanent supportive housing project. 
whereby that term was now coined. Previous to that, uh, the term did not exist. In that particular project, I, I recall, had two very small case management offices. And it had a very, very small community room um, in the units uh, where uh, about 300 square feet, if I recall correctly, with kitchenettes and uh, the bathrooms uh, had a tub. And as we sort of now look back at that, some of those things were great and some of the things were not so great. So for instance, like Debbie was alluding to, uh, with ADA access today, given the fact that we have a significant amount of our folks uh, that may be handicapped or disabled, we try to make at least half of our units uh, have roll-in showers. And those roll-in showers are a, a tremendous benefit uh, to those individuals, prevent accidents, and uh, truth be told, they're easier to clean. Um, from that, we also learned, like I said, that the, the spaces uh, are critical. So if we view today, today we put much, much more emphasis on that exterior space. And the reason we do that is, as we are now in Los Angeles running out of land, and the spaces, the interior spaces are getting smaller, there's a greater need for us to have more open shared spaces. And we try to do that within the building, like I was saying, and also with external connection. And that external connection could be a mixed use building where you might even have some commercial spaces below that connect well. Uh, to the building and those exterior spaces, uh, such as park spaces, which is a new area that we're starting to get to uh, in conjunction with some park partners and the Surplus Land Act that's very, very recent here uh, in Los Angeles. The other thing that I think it's important to talk about is that all the old product were ACK rehabs. And we went from ACK rehab built up new construction to today playing around with a significant amount of off-site prefab construction typology. So whether we're talking about prefab construction or whether we're talking about shipping containers or whether we're talking about off-site assemblies such as mass timber, uh, which recently got passed into code, those are tremendous new tools for us because it enables us to go quicker. And I, I wanted to highlight that the um, older buildings that we did in, in the early 90s, it was uh, driven by the financing uh, sources that were available at the time and where public policy was. So, it, so uh, that uh, these older properties had, had less you know, couldn't support a lot of debt. Um, and it was the early days of the tax credit program, which was viewed by the capital markets as, as you know, like, what is this crazy new program? And so we would only get uh, maybe 45 cents when I first started at National Equity Fund or 50 cents per low-income housing tax credit dollar. And today we're getting in the 
you know, at the height of the market, we were getting just above a dollar. And now the market is softening. We're, we're seeing the high 80s and low 90s, but still twice as much money through the long-term housing tax credit program, which is then able to pay, you know, for, for these various improvements. Uh, and um, I, I, I wanted to highlight, though, that these older buildings, though, uh, uh, were very important because it, it, it did start the conversation of uh, that housing, uh, getting, you know, getting people off the street into permanent housing was the first step to breaking the cycle of homelessness. And then as we were starting to service people in this housing, we realized, well, we need more space for social service activities to occur in the building, like AA meetings or uh, job training sessions. And um, so today we're going back and looking at these buildings that we did in the 90s. Uh, and, and yes, it, and then some of them were very small from 150 to 220 square feet. Um, and, uh, and where we can, we are maybe combining a few units so that we can, you know, everyone can have their own bathroom and little kitchenette. But some buildings we're choosing because we don't want to lose units to keep it into a congregate living situation where they're, but we are able to upgrade the storage areas for people um, storing their food and their kitchen supplies. Um, and uh, we have, you know, uh, better fixtures in the units. And so there's more pride in, in the building and, and more colorful hallways, better lighting, less institutional, making it less institutional looking, warming up the community areas, adding rooms where people can store their bikes safely. Uh, so, so these older buildings are like, in some cases, maybe uh, it, they, they've shown that we can fix some of the energy efficiency issues, the accessibility issues, and, um, um, and, and so that we don't lose the units because we can't always afford to tear down and build new. We're, we realize today we, we have to look at different models, but we can't forget the old buildings. They weren't built because you know, we, were, we were doing what we could at the time with the tools that we had and so, 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 um, so there is a focus of, of doing a rehab of these, of these older properties in addition to, hey, we're learning about these new social models and we're putting in um, better elements into our design programs. So those buildings may not need the significant rehab just 15 years later. They might be able to last 25 years to 30 years, for instance. If I can chime in for a second. Um... That's absolutely correct. I think one of the things that we're seeing today is the, the creation of multiple tools. So previously, that tool looked very much like, like if you go back, let's say those 20 years to that Act Rehab SRO project that then sort of evolved into a new construction building. Today, you know, it would be fabulous to have all those tools across the board. And we're going to start seeing smaller tools as well, including, you know, shared living potentially in single family homes with accessory dwelling units uh, and a host of other uh, things that are occurring as a result of COVID. I just have one little other history lesson I just forgot to mention that was really, really important was um, the Housing and Economic Reform Act of 2008 
had uh, had put in at the, at the very, as we are just about to get it to Congress to vote on, um, was a language uh, around general public use. And, uh, and then we were allowed, we, we had coverage that was okay to build affordable housing that had a preference for special needs. Because there was some question by the IRS who basically reviews the long-term housing tax credit program because it's the longest section of the tax code. The IRS was wondering when we were doing housing for people with domestic violence, or we were doing housing for the hearing impaired, or we were doing housing for homeless veterans. Like if, if that was the focus of the housing, were we in compliance with general public use? And fortunately, that federal legislation was passed and we can build housing with a preference for people with special needs and have different design elements that help support the independence and the healing for that special needs population. And I think this is all uh, really interesting and just hearing about the breadth of concerns that, uh, that have taken place, you know, over the years and, and how you know, development and, and for this uh, and, you know, producing housing um, for uh, the folks most in need has, has changed over time and has truly impacted by uh, many, many factors. I know Corey and I on the show talked to lots of people who are, you know, seeing a, a growing affordability problem. And I think, as you guys say, the, having a, a, a tool belt or having multiple tools available um, to, to address these issues is key. And, and, I, and I really like hearing about, too, how so many considerations are given to the tenants and, and what kind of design is needed for them. Um, one, one of the big things that we didn't get a chance to talk on yet was uh, was kind of that progression from rehab to um, acquisition uh, or, or, you know, new development deals. And I know that, Christian, you have an experience at Skid Row Housing where, where you did one of the first deals this way? Yes, that, that was actually the Rainbow Apartments. Uh, that was, like I said, back in 2005, it was the first new construction then that uh, Skid Row had undertaken. Everything before then was, uh, was acquisition rehab. So yes, you're correct. One of my, my duties when I was at Skid Row was uh, not only to effectuate new production, uh, but also to ensure that we took care of the older buildings. The genesis, uh, old genesis, uh, was a 30-unit SRO transaction at the corner of 5th and Main in downtown Los Angeles. Because of its size, uh, it didn't work very well, and it became a financial problem on a monthly basis for the organization. So was, what we did was we decided to uh, reposition the project uh, and make it larger. And one of the things we had to do was to purchase land. And we were fortunate enough to, back then, uh, acquire the, a parking lot that was right next to the project that enabled us to entitle both of those lots to essentially create a 100-unit uh, studio building. Um, and that was um, during uh, this, this crisis. So uh, this is, I'm referring to the 2008 crisis uh, that then had uh, what was called ARA, ARA dollars and TCAP dollars. 
um, for 85 cents on, on the dollar. So uh, that then transpired into a, a, a very tough analysis on how to make the financial uh, package work because we had decreased pricing from just a year before then. Uh, the building came out beautiful and uh, we were able to still incorporate several uh, commercial spaces on the ground floor, significant amount uh, of open space, an open uh, stairway that connected the building and we were able to even structure uh, a few artist lofts uh, on the sixth story of the building. And today, uh, you know, in spite of the fact that back then we encountered significant nimbyism uh, because it was at the corner of Fifth and Main at a time when the resurgence of downtown LA uh, was at its height, uh, we were able to convince the nimbies that what they wanted, which was to get people off the street, was also what we wanted, was to get people the street and we did and we were put them into housing which is awesome it was a win-win and i think that the building today stands as a beacon of how uh permanent supportive housing can be an asset to a thriving neighborhood now that that's such a such a great story and such a such a great case and you know speaking of the the uh the nimby issue one one of the things that i i noticed is looking you know looking over the the portfolio of your work is just you know how impressive uh, architecturally some of the buildings are and you know does that uh, sort of factor into the uh, you know how you address nimbyism or what's what's your view on architecture in uh, supportive housing i this is a personal belief that i have carried on to uh, all my incarnations to our board and uh, to the staff at Clifford Beers Housing, and that is that whenever I work on a building, I think to myself, what is it that I would like if I lived in that building? And what you end up is, you know, our tenant population is truly the most deserving of buildings that have the most light, right? The, the best vented building. So if you've ever worked in construction, one of the things that you realize is that there's a thing called value engineering, right? And value engineering is the exercise of decreasing construction costs because you know you, you missed your pro forma. There's a problem somewhere. And some of the first things that go are windows, right? Because windows are very expensive. Uh, venting is the next thing that goes in terms of positioning and so forth. So you have to carefully figure out how to maximize sort of those basic foundational pieces uh, into a building. And the most wonderful thing, and I've been blessed, that I have worked with some phenomenal architects that are truly devoted to the work that we do. They really have a socially uh, responsible aspect to them. So Lorcan Harlehy, for instance, Michael Maltzett, uh, Killifer Fleming, uh, just to name a few, are, are folks that today I continue doing business with and we continue evolving this, these, these typologies. So we're getting more 
out of the same land. Each successive project builds on the learning and the institutional memory of the project. So, um, so that's really interesting. And I know that as you involve architects and, and you think deeply about you know, the, the, the design that, uh, that there's, um, you know, you, you consider, you know, placement of the property or, or the, the attractive land that you have. Um, do you have any uh, is, uh, other examples that, that you can bring up in that space? Sure. Um, the, uh, the Isla project, which is essentially at the crossroads of the 110 and the 105, is an, an example of the culmination of all that learning that has occurred and really uh, is the 2.0 of the Star Apartments. So the Star Apartments, as folks may or may not know, is essentially a prefab construction on top of a superstructure that was imposed into uh, an old warehouse in downtown Los Angeles. And when we engaged in uh, designing Isla, we said, what were some of those lessons learned? And one of the biggest was concrete podium, which is essentially the structure, the concrete structure that holds your parking is inherently evil. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, it's inherently costly is what it is, uh, hideously costly. So it can be as much as 10% of total development cost. So that, that concrete that has all that rebar that essentially sustains all that is uh, pro cost prohibitive. So as we now proceed to site new projects, that becomes a check in our box. And to say, are we within close proximity of a transit-oriented corridor, but then we can do away with that. And that was one of the things that we did with Isla. So we said, okay, this is the perfect site to be able to do that. The second check that we engage in is uh, trying to ensure that we don't pay for land. So we engage in a competitive uh, request for proposal process, and we were fortunate enough to be selected as the developer. And so now by removing the cost of land and removing the cost of concrete podium, and by removing uh, the lengthy typical built-up construction, because the project is a shipping container project, we've been able to drive down construction costs, which thereby means that we're able to put that money into all the beautiful amenities that the project is going to contain, including, you know, rooftop spaces and Annenberg Paseo, that's going to be this connector. It's essentially a street next to the site uh, that's going to be turned into, uh, like I previously said, uh, this sale that contains these trees that we call the living lung. And that's because the trees have been carefully selected to ensure that they uh, decrease the contaminants in the air. And we also selected them to ensure that they were uh, friendly to gray water because a lot of species are not. So by doing that research now, we're able to activate the, the space that not only cleans the air for the building, but cleans the air for a significantly larger area, and it becomes a model for future projects. I think that's an interesting point about 
finding low cost land and partnerships to find to find those sites. We've, you know, in addition to government agencies, the um, other uh, partners have been uh, the Catholic Church. We were able to build our first 100% veterans project in Chicago with Catholic Charities on a site of a former uh, former uh, Catholic school, and um, and then. Uh, most recently, you know, that was like at the beginning of our Veterans Initiative in, in 2000, that was probably back in 2006, and we just closed this year uh, on uh, American Legion Post 139's uh, site in Arlington, Virginia, uh, where they sold their, their site to uh, a local nonprofit affordable housing developer, similar to Clifford Beers, and um, and uh they wanted their site was located near public transportation across from the George Mason Law School, and the Terwilliger Place uh, will will house 160 affordable units, half which will be targeted to veterans, and uh, um, and that couldn't be possible in such a high income community as Arlington, Virginia, without uh, mission driven. Um, uh, you know, community-based organizations like the American Legion Post, who will then, um, with with the sale of the land um, at a reasonable price, they put um, some of the the acquisition proceeds back in as soft financing, and um, and then they're going to be also paying for a new community center in the building, so they will be able to revitalize their program. So, so you know, housing can, you know, with these these partnerships, we you know taking dilapidated buildings or vacant lots that the government hasn't been able to do anything about, or the VA um, had had a lot of um, uh, an RFP at the end of 2011, and there uh, they took sites at like 30 plus different locations of excess buildings or excess land on VA medical campuses and did 75 year leases. Uh, with with the requirement that we built housing for homeless veterans, so uh, so that's the key. Is the word is, is 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 to find sites and 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 have partnerships, and and then the permanent supportive housing is beneficial on several levels uh, for the parties involved. So are are you seeing I mean, with some of these innovative uh, you know activities on the design side and on the partnership side, are you seeing these be uh, mimicked by others outside of the per, uh, permanent supportive housing space? Yes, I think though that, um, uh, and, and some of the permanent supportive housing is half permanent supportive housing and, and half affordable housing. But I, I, it's 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 important. We were just I was just highlighting that design is very important uh, in quality design and partnerships are very important in permanent supportive housing because we're trying to house people with no income or very little income. So uh, you you have to get uh, uh, creative in the financing stack because if you're just doing sometimes a straight affordable housing project in let's say San Diego and 60% of AMI rents are, are quite high and so then you could probably build the deal with long-term housing tax credits and a conventional first mortgage. But if you're trying to serve people who have incomes of, of anywhere from $30 to $200 a month, because you know 
social, you know, because they're living on social security income, um, or they they've been homeless for a number of years and they haven't been able to to access the benefit programs. Uh, then you 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 need rent subsidies and you need um, soft financing. Uh, you, you can't really pay a lot of amortizing debt. So then it's like, okay, well the project you know still costs you know you know tens of millions of dollars and you can't borrow the money quickly. So these deals take longer because you have to apply for for all the soft financing. And the faster you can do the project is like finding ways to to make it cheaper. And one of the ways is on the land. Got it. And, and to the point of, of permanent uh, permanent debt, uh, have you been seeing, you know, you mentioned, you know, some of the projects are not all 100% uh, permanent supportive housing. So are there cases where you are able to get uh, permanent debt on supportive housing projects? Yes, 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 for sure. I mean, and that's... Um, Again, um, one of the, the things is the project-based section. When the project-based section eight uh, uh, program came into being in in the late in the late nineties, and was revamped in two thousand, and then um, uh, later on in twenty sixteen, uh, with a healthy project-based section eight program, we then have an income stream. And, um, and then the bank sees that it has a guaranteed income stream because it's a contract now for 20 years is the initial contract period, which is, exceeds the 15-year low-income housing tax credit period. That innovation going to 20 years was phenomenal because now we can go to the debt markets and like if we have a mixture, let's say 30% of the units or 50% of the units are for permanent supportive housing, with an income stream, with a Section 8 contract for 20 years, it's generating the same income as a regular affordable use unit. And we have homeless people living side by side with low-income people who, in many cases, are struggling, you know, and and and, and t- having to take advantage of the services that are available for free on the site that are specifically sometimes there to help the homeless people. But, you know, everyone, you know, hits a catastrophic event and could use a little bit of help. So then when we have this income stream, we can go and, and take advantage of the low interest rates in the marketplace and per- permanent debt. And that closes the, the loop of we have private conventional debt, public-private partnerships, public land, or we have public soft loans from the county or the state through bond initiatives. We have private conventional debt. We have the public project-based rent subsidies. We can then create, you know, amazingly, you know, healthy environments that can break the cycle of homelessness. And, um, I, you know, some of what I hear throughout all of the many things that we've talked about today is I think that each of you kind of view, um, you know, the, the complexities and uh, whether it's financing or build or acquire or um, renovate um, and, and even considering design and the people involved is that... Uh, you know, there's opportunity. I, I think that uh, I, that you you approach this with uh, with the perspective of of this is you know opportunity to create housing and and uh, and that's kind of opened up you know the the world of and of the way that you do this. Would you say that's correct? You know that, that's a that's a interesting uh, statement. Uh, earlier this year, we engaged with a strategic plan with our board where that became the cornerstone um, 
of that that plant and that cornerstone essentially was this Japanese character that we selected uh, that essentially means chaos and opportunity are one it onto itself. Uh, so I, yes, you're absolutely correct. We we view that wholeheartedly uh, from that respect. And let me let me cite an example so you know what we're talking about. So pre-pandemic, uh, so I'm talking about January and February of this year, we had 66,000 homeless individuals in Los Angeles County. Uh, today, we, we haven't had a, a homeless count since then, but we know very well that that number is going to be higher, uh, particularly if these mor this moratorium is not extended here in Los Angeles. Uh, so be that as it may, that tremendous number could never be absorbed by Section 8. So we today must take on the challenge of essentially trying to figure out how is it that we can now underwrite a transaction that would contain, uh, you know, those, those deep affordability targets without that subsidy. And so Clifford Beers today is uh, innovating in advancing some new models that do cross-subsidizing. So for instance, think of a transaction where 25 to 30% of the units are PSH, and then the remaining units have uh, an area median income between 45 and 80% of AMI. And if you're able to essentially have a significant amount of units, and by a significant amount, of units I'm referring to probably north of 70 units, and we're able now to bring in all these construction cost-saving measures and the siting examples that we cited earlier, that capital stack can be lower. And as a result, you might even be able to underwrite a small capitalized operating subsidy reserve for the project. Uh, so the models are out there. We just haven't been pushed into that, but I think that same innovation and that same spirit and that same opportunity that we have fueled into design and the evolution of these buildings can now be fueled into these new innovative financial models that will be the models of the future. And, and we also, I think, have not as a country, you know, uh, we, we did, NEF has invested in some affordable assisted living projects and, uh, and that's another uh, example of uh, how the environment can support the can support the independence of, of frail seniors who who have uh, physical um, and mental disabilities. And design can uh, keep people out of institutions. Um, but to build affordable assisted living takes partnerships, and then um, the, the the those deals tend to have a, will rely on a lot of services. And so that's the other piece is the Medicaid paying for services. And that's that's been new in the last few years is, is Medicaid dollars uh, uh, helping to pay for behavioral and mental health services and some of our permanent supportive housing projects. And so all these um, uh, looking at design and finance is an opportunity to create incentives for more creative solutions to keep people at home, get people off the street, to keep them out of prisons and hospital emergency rooms and cycling in and out of higher cost 
settings, um, uh, and we can, we can and and good design has also have been an element to to basically help people recidivism go down and people stay in the units longer, and in some cases move on to living independently in the community. Debbie, I, I really like that that point about you know putting design and finance together. Um, and so, Christian and Debbie, you know maybe you know as we uh, wrap up the discussion today, just thinking ahead, like uh, what do you see as, as some of the the new uh, new innovations, new partnerships that that are untapped today? You know, can I ask you to speculate a little bit about where we might be going in the future? Um, one of the things that we've learned in this now pandemic world is that all that supportive service space that we previously did on site is currently underutilized, right? And it's underutilized because everything today has is being done remotely. And we've proven that essentially telemedicine uh, can be effectively uh, done. So take case management, for instance. Uh, Perhaps not everything, but almost everything can be effectively done. And what that does is essentially make us think about the future and how we conceive new spaces. So one of the things that we're looking at in a lot of our more recent RFPs that we've submitted to uh, is the ability to take those case management spaces and still design them in the building, but make them flex space. So that means that uh, you know, case manager today can you know bring you know their laptop and they can conduct you know uh, their interviews and you know have privacy per HIPAA. Uh, but when they're done, they leave, and now someone else can actually come in. Perhaps somebody that's in their unit and doesn't have the space, or maybe they want to get away from their kids um, and within the same building, and they'll have Wi-Fi access. So we are reconceptualizing what that post-pandemic world could look like or if this pandemic continues. In the same way uh, with uh, having access to open space. So if we can now site projects next to parks by once again uh, having these, these partnerships with our park partners and the surplus land act that I was talking about, we're able to provide more uh, healthy well-being for our tenants. So a lot of that, uh, those ideas have to be done up front in that siding stage to ensure you're able to bring in these things. Because once you essentially have a piece of land, there's only so much you can do with it. Um, so I, those are some of the examples that I see in, in the new world. So the two challenges I see that's in front of a supportive housing community these days is how do we build this house, permit supportive housing cheaper and faster is one. And the other is how do we provide adequate services? And I think there are, like you said, what's on the sidelines right now? Well, cheaper and faster. I, I, I think with the pandemic and COVID, we're not going to see the recovery of the hotel industry. You know, some say maybe not till 2023. 
And will we need all those extended stay residences and office parks? And one idea that uh, some of our customers are pursuing and that we're helping them with bridge financing is, is, is to acquire the, 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 the extended stay facilities that are in good condition because they have kitchenettes and we could apply a project-based section eight so that here it is, the design and the finance. And then we could uh, more quickly get people who are in temporary housing uh, that you know, with with the CARES Act and the FEMA dollars that we've they've been in California, it's called Project Room Key. We need to get the people who are in temporary transitional housing who are homeless. We can't just release them back to the street. That's like inhumane, and also we still don't have uh, uh, this the, the COVID under control. So uh, so there's there's that idea that's floating around with people is like, hey, you know, do we need all the certain types of hotels that we have out there, will they all come back? Because there's questions of, will business travel resume as it was if there is a vaccine? We just don't know, you know, because we are seeing the effectiveness of Zoom. And um, and it's, we're still like, our company is turning along and still doing quite well when we, a lot of us were on the road a lot. Um, the second is adequate service dollars. And I, I'm hoping um, uh, that we could get more creative with IT, you know, uh, and billing to Medicaid. Like using Medicaid, uh, there was a lot of money spent um, for Medicaid versus Medicare is, is health insurance for, for, for very low income people. And coming up with uh, that as we need a regular income source to pay for the services once we have people housed help keep them housed and 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 that has a cost and and but people are using more healthcare services and are more expensive to our system if they're not getting some you know basically it's like you know you're, you're like getting your your regular health checkup, you know, you need your regular mental health checkup. You need people there for moments of crisis and, and, and having um, better, better systems. Uh, unfortunately, you know, you know, Medicaid programs vary by state by state. And if we had more efficient systems for providing the service dollars and, and attached to the permanent supportive housing, I think, I think we would, we would do better. Um, and that and that's something worth exploring in the future. Well, it's it's great to hear about um, you know the innovative thinking about um, you know what can be done, what what has already been done, and even considering the pandemic and uh, and how that changes considerations. And I think that we've covered a lot of ground today, and it's really been great having the two of you on. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, Stephen Corey. It's, it's great to be here. Yes, thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.